Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. And welcome back, everyone. This is the X-Zone. I am Rob McConnell, and we're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Just a programming reminder that uh, starting mid-February here in the Hamilton, Toronto, Golden Horseshoe area, the Exxon TV show is going to be on Cable 14. Unfortunately, at this time, I do not have the exact date we start and the time, but as soon as I get that from our friends at Cable 14, I will certainly let you know. And don't forget, right now we're on the Exxon TV channel that is on Simul TV. Our channel number with Simul TV is channel 21 starting in a couple of weeks we're going to be on iLaunch radio in the 50 u.s states and in 50 countries and then later on in the month of february we're going to be on comcast busy times here in the x-zone my guest this hour Nation, is dr irena scott she received her phd from the university of missouri college of veterinarian medicine in physiology did postdoctoral research at cornell university and has had a professorship at St. Bonaventure University. Her MS was from the University of Nevada. Her BS was from Ohio State University in Astronomy and Biology. And she's done research and teaching at the Ohio State University College of Medicine and the University of Nevada. The Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, employed her in PhD level G11 research in satellite photography, including in its uh, air order of battalion or battle section, which involved aircraft identification with above top secret clearances. She was employed in MS level work at the as a physical scientist cartographer in the DM Aerospace Center using satellite photography and she worked at Battelle Memorial Institute. She has uh, been sent for work-related purposes to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. Now, she was a volunteer astronomer at the Ohio State University Radio Observatory, noted for the WOW SETI signal, is an amateur astronomer, has taken flying lessons, and is a drone pilot. Well, that explains what's buzzing around our studios. (laughs) So, uh, first of all, you know, Dr. Scott, you're a well-known lady, highly respected, and I want to welcome you to the X-Zone. Well, thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. So tell us, Dr. Scott, I understand that you have a new book that is out. Tell us, tell us, about, tell us the name of your new book and, and, you know, what's the main idea behind your new book? My new book is called Sacred Corridors, 
secrets behind the real Project Blue Book, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Roswell, Battelle Memorial, uh, Memory Metal, mm-hmm. Dr. J. Allen Hynek, and UFO cover-ups. Wow, that's and, one hell of a title. <laughs> well, uh, just one is the main title and the rest is a subtitle. Oh, I see. So the main title is Sacred Corridors. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and where did your interest in ufology come from, ma'am? It uh, came from way back in my childhood mm-hmm. when my sister and I had something pretty odd happen to us when we were young kids. And we didn't understand it for many, many years and finally figured out it was uh, UFO-related. Could you share the experience and, with us? Okay. Okay. Uh, when my sister and I were really young, I think she was about four and I was about six, mm-hmm. we uh, lived in, it, our family lived in an old farmhouse, and one night after dark, on a real clear night, we were sleeping in beds on the opposite sides of a attic room Okay. with walls that sort of sloped up to the ceiling about three feet between them and the ceiling, and I was asleep. And I woke up, and there was this little thing flying around the room. It looked like a piece of hot metal. And I didn't understand what it was. Neither one of us had ever heard of UFOs or anything like that. We were kind of poor, and we just had one radio. Um, And uh, it flew around, and it seemed like it was, it's hard to guess from, that far back, but it seemed like it was for more than a minute at least, and maybe longer than that. It flew around the room, and it just took a browsing motion like it was looking around, and it seemed to be guided because we had furniture and walls and us and everything in the room, and it didn't bump into anything. Mm -hmm. It would go one way, and then if it came to a wall, it would turn about a foot away and go someplace else. And it was uh, it probably be considered a close encounter now because it got quite close to both of us and I didn't know she was awake Um, and so we weren't talking about but it flew around the room and just up and down and back and forth and everything there was um, the room was closed there were two doors and one window and everything was closed and we had no idea how it got inside Uh, we just both woke up and it was there. And so after it flew around the room for a while, it flew up toward the ceiling. And um, then it made a right-angle turn. It it flew up toward the ceiling, but it didn't hit the ceiling. It made a right-angle turn and flew over to the, straight over to the chandelier. The chandelier was between the two walls, and there was a space between it and the walls. Well, the thing started circling the chandelier. My God. And it didn't, yeah, it didn't figure out, it didn't seem to, it seemed to be able to know where everything was. The chandelier was turned off, of course. But it it just flew the chandelier and a certain distance away from it and began to circle. And it was right between this uh, chandelier and the two walls. Like it knew where it was going. It didn't even, it didn't feel its way around or anything. It just went there. And so then it, made a spiral it, it probably about 20, 30 times, and it seemed to speed up a little when it circled. 
And then it started making a spiral down under the chandelier. And at that time, both of us at the same time just became absolutely terrified and ran shrieking from the room so hard we fell down the stair steps. Oh, no. And then we ran to our parents shrieking and screaming in fear. I mean, it was probably one of the worst fear I ever had. And um, they didn't believe us. And my father threatened to beat us up if we didn't go back upstairs. Well, well, hold on here, hold on here, hold on. Your father threatened to beat you up? Yeah, they didn't believe us. But still, you you don't threaten to beat up a child because you don't believe them. But anyway, that's how I think. Well, good. But (laughs) I don't know if he was going to or not. Oh, I see. Okay. And um, then he went upstairs and said everything was clear, nothing was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so we went back up. But it was a very strange experience. And many, many, many years later, I read a book by um, Jenny Randall's called Star Children. And she talked about bedroom UFO experiences of young children. Right. And she said that lots of times young children will see things in their bedroom like that, little orbs or balls of light or whatever it was seem like an object to me and then later they have a pattern of seeing ufos um later in life Hmm. well we kind of fit that pattern and we were sort of unusual because this usually happens to one person and instead it happened to both of us that we saw um that when we were young and then together we had a ufo experience when we were um older too so it was interesting, and it was also, I mean, scary for many reasons besides just being terrified, although we didn't know why at the time. Um, but it was like, kind of like in thinking back, it was kind of like mind control because we both woke up at the same time for no reason at all, Then we both became terrified at the same time. And so it was kind of a pretty weird experience. Well, so couldn't, that, couldn't the fact that you both woke up at the same time been caused by... Uh, an exterior sound or something other than the the possibility of mind control from a UFO? I don't know because I didn't, there was just no reason why I woke up. I mean, I didn't hear anything or anything. I just woke up and the same for her. So I just don't know. All right, uh, Irina, please stand by. You and I have to take our first break. Index Nation, our guest this hour is Dr. Irina Scott. Her website is www.irinascott.com. That's I-R-E-N-A-S-C-O-T-T dot com. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, iHeartRadio, Simul Radio and Simul TV. We'll be back after this break. Don't go away. that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. 
Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, everyone. Irina Scott is our very special guest this hour. Her website is www.irenascott.com, and she has a brand new book out entitled Sacred Corridors. Now, you told us about the first encounter that you and your sister had, and you said there was another encounter that you you had. Yes. Um, we're from the Midwestern United States, mm-hmm. and um, People don't talk about things like that. And when we were kids, we weren't supposed to talk about anything when we did find out about UFOs. Right. But both of us had other experiences. And then we had another very weird experience together later when we were grown up. Can you share that with us? And this, pardon? Can you share that with us? Yes, thank you. Um, it, uh, we were starting out on our careers and... She was at Drew University taking postgraduate work, and I was working for the Defense Intelligence Agency in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and we were both on the east end of the country, and so we thought it would be nice to um, drive up and see the New England states one weekend. And so we took off, and I picked up some people I worked with and left them off where she was and took some pictures of them. And then we drove up to Boston, and we intended to really look around Boston and everything. But we got there, and it was still daylight. And so we drove up around Route 3 into New Hampshire just to look around and came back and later discovered that that's where Betty and Barney Hill have had part of their um, abduction experience. And so we came, I mean, we didn't know that then, but it was just interesting. And so we came back to Boston and drove into Boston looking for a place to stay. It was before cell phones, mm-hmm. and didn't find anything, and they told us to go out and um, look around the outer belt. And so we were leaving Boston, and we saw this object uh, south of us. And it was, uh, there, it was near an airport. There were, um, uh, it was called Norwich Municipal Airport, and we could see the planes coming in and landing um, at the airport, like with their lights and landing lights and things, right. we were watching those. But there was this object down lower, and my sister kept saying, "This is really odd," and I kept telling her that it was a helicopter blinking its landing lights. It was a real white light, no other lights around it, and it was blinking. And so we were arguing, and then both of us told each other that we'd seen UFOs. Mm-hmm. And neither one of us had said anything about it for our childhood or any time. And so we continued, and then we took the freeway south, and the thing was still in front of us, blinking. And um, we, the freeway went through a woods, and in the woods was this round thing that um, it looked like it might have been 50 feet away from the car or something. It wasn't very far away. And it was going through the spectrum of colors of different shades of, of red and blue. 
and I'd never seen anything like it, and I couldn't figure out what on earth is that thing. Um, and as we drove by, the inside of the car lit up in green. And so I looked around. I didn't see any green anywhere, and I thought there must be a beam coming from that thing, but I didn't see one. And so we kept on driving. The thing was still in front of us, and we were still arguing. Uh, and um, uh, she started yelling at me after a while and said, just screaming at me and said to stop because it was going to go over the road uh, where we were. And so I stopped, and I was going to say, see, it's a helicopter tour, and let her know what it was. And I looked out the window, and I, really far off I saw a meteor. And then right over the trees, this big object came. And um, then I realized she was right and I was wrong. I don't know if I apologized right then, though. But she said later that the inside of the car lit up again in a funny, strange light, which I didn't see, but I was on the window side looking at it. And it was a big thing. It had seven windows. They were square. And they were blinking in sort of a complex sequence. Mm -hmm. And you'd probably say this is a blimp. But we grew up on a farm with a freeway through it. And it was sort of a blimp route. And so we'd seen blimps by freeways for years. And I'd taken pictures of ones with lighted sides and things. And this wasn't anything like a blimp. Um, what was it, so what was it I, like? What was it like, Doctor? Pardon? What, what, was, oh. what was it like? Was it like the, the, uh, the craft that Betty and Barney Hill saw? I, in some ways, there was something similar about mm-hmm. it because... I looked at that, and I wrote an article about it, and I also look consider it in the book. Um, the first picture, the first drawings that Betty and Barty Hill made of their craft showed seven square windows. Yeah, that's right. And we seven square windows, and it our the profile of what we saw looked an awful lot like their first drawings. I had compared them in a um, several writings. Um, theirs came down and abducted. I don't know what happened with ours. But we were watching this sequence of blinking lights through these seven windows. And we ask each other questions all the time. Do you see this? What sequence is going on and things? And if I even suspected for a second that it was a UFO as I was driving along, I'd have had my camera out. But I had a camera in the car and high-speed film in the trunk. And so I had to find both of those in the dark and try to get the camera loaded. Well, at that time, it was real close. We could see inside. It looked like we were seeing the inside of the thing. And I thought, oh, this is wonderful because I'm going to get a picture of the inside of a UFO and I'll be the only one in the world to get this. This truck driver drove in front of us and stopped and came back just when I was ready to get the picture and asked us what we were doing. Uh He was standing right beside me, and I was kind of nervous because he was a man out there, and we were in the dark and everything. And he asked us what we were doing. And so we pointed at the thing, and then he just rotated around the exact opposite direction, looked in the opposite direction, and said, I don't see anything. Then he rotated back and looked at me Mm -hmm. and said the same thing, just not sarcastic or anything. What are you looking at? And so I pointed again. 
And so he did exactly the same thing and turned back around, you know, said he didn't see it. And then he pointed to his head like I was crazy. And he went back to his truck and he stayed there and watched us in his truck. And I had just missed a fantastic picture, but I still wanted to get some kind of a picture. And I climbed up a nearby hill and managed to get, um, took some pictures. And one of them turned out well, and I, being a, I already was a photo analyst. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of analyzed it later and got a lot of information out of it. But then um, I came back, and when I wrote my book, I didn't realize this, but when he was, when you point at something and somebody can't see it, they look in that direction. And when I pointed at that, he looked in the opposite direction both times. And so he knew where it was, but he was looking in the opposite direction. And so it, for, I had always thought maybe that was a coincidence, but I finally thought as I wrote my book, I mean, after my book was written, that wasn't a coincidence. He was just deliberately looking in the wrong direction. And so... Um, the object went to the airport and began to circle. And we both watched that, and we watched the planes up above it. And I decided that it might go in the opposite direction than it had been. And so I uh, took my car to the road and got in the road, the freeway, because I was going to turn around an intersection and come back. I really didn't know what direction it was going to go, but I was just guessing. And the truck driver got right behind us. He turned on his bright lights. He was just riding my bumper and showed him in my mirror so I couldn't see a thing. And he chased us. Each time I changed lanes or slowed down and sped up, so did he. He stayed right behind me. And I thought we were going to get killed, and I said goodbye to my sister. And the only way I could think of to get rid of him was to turn off at an intersection very sharply from the left-hand side of the road. Mm-hmm. And this was a very dangerous thing to do in case somebody was coming up faster on the right side. But I did, and we survived. And so I drove back up, and it was still circling. And then it headed northwest. And so I uh, had to go north and then west, north and west, because the roads didn't go northwest. They went you know, up and east and west and north and south. And so we went by that thing in the woods again, and the inside of the tar- car turned green again. And then finally I was on this real old beat-up road with houses a long ways away from each other and gravel, and it was just a very rural road, and you couldn't turn around. And it was going just a little bit faster than I was going. And so I had to turn around quick because I just couldn't follow it anymore because I was afraid of tear my all right we're going to have to do a little bit of a cliffhanger here because i have to take my my news break at the bottom of the hour so please don't go away doctor explanation our guest this hour is irena scott her website is irenascott.com and she's the author of a new book entitled sacred corridors this is the exxon i am rob mcconnell we're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in hamilton ontario canada we'll be back after the news don't go away
that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So Nation, Irina Scott is our very special guest this hour. She's the author of Sacred Corridors. Her website is irinascott.com. Now, before we went to the news, you were telling us about the second UFO encounter that you and your sister had. And I must tell you, Doctor, there's, there seems like there's, there's elements of the Betty and Barney Hill craft and then the glow of the Randlesham Forest craft. Who do you think this guy was that was chasing you? I have no idea, and we obviously didn't know he was going to chase us. Sure. I mean, I knew when I talked to him something was really wrong, mm-hmm. but um, we didn't observe the truck or anything or get his license plate or anything like that because we didn't know that was going to happen. Um, he just seemed like a normal person, except for he wasn't in his actions, and um he didn't seem to have an accent or anything. He was just like, you know, he was in Massachusetts, but he just looked like an Ohioan. And so I didn't notice anything wrong with him. I mean, anything unusual, except for he definitely wasn't normal or he wouldn't try to kill us. Right. But I I don't know what was going on with him or what was going on with the whole thing, actually. Is it possible um, that, that he thought you and your sister may be in some kind of danger yourselves and that he was just trying to protect you guys? I don't think so, no, because I... um, if he'd been a regular truck driver, he wouldn't have done that. He, that would have That's scared true. us to death. Yeah. And um, also, he didn't go on after he checked us out and find, found everything was okay. He just stayed there and watched us. And so I don't think... It, it, that was my first impression yeah. that he was checking us. But I didn't get that impression later, and especially after you tried to kill us, I didn't get that impression. <laughs> yeah, that would kind of ruin everything for you, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, so what happened to the UFO? So I don't know, but uh, we drove back to her dormitory and uh-huh. stayed, and I was waiting for these people that I took from work, and they never showed up. And anyway, then I went home, and I had a poltergeist experience that the next night and it was pretty nerve-wracking because i was working for the dia i had Mm -hmm. these high security clearances and i was afraid i'd never heard poltergeist i was afraid i'd just gone totally insane and i was afraid i'd go to work and people would discover i was insane and i'd lose my job so it was the whole thing was pretty (laughs) nerve-wracking so what happened with your poltergeist Um, what did you experience I got back fairly late because I waited a long time for the uh, DIA people. Right. And then it was pretty late when I got home. And I went to bed. And I heard 
a man walking around in my apartment. Hmm. And I couldn't, this was pretty scary. And there was a little bit of light coming from a street light, but I couldn't see anything, like nobody walking around my apartment. If there had been, I would have been terrified. But I could hear somebody. Sometimes I'd try to feel the person when it sounded close. But it was just like a man walking with, you know, shoes on around my apartment. And so, um, in spite of being terrified, I went to sleep. Why wouldn't you and, have called the police? Well, I couldn't see anything. But still, you know, the and, police are there to serve and protect. I'm sure if you said, listen, I'm a, I'm a single young lady living in an apartment, and some, I believe somebody is in my apartment. I can hear these footsteps. They would have been more than happy to send a police car over. I guess I just never thought oh, about it. Okay. Um, I, I did block the door and mm-hmm. put a chair against the door. But due to the fact that I couldn't see anything, I thought, you know, it wasn't like I could see somebody in my apartment. And I I, if I couldn't see anything, there wasn't, why would a police person see anything? So I just couldn't figure it out. And I went to sleep, even though I was terrified. And my alarm went off at one thirty. I woke up. I thought it was time to go to work. And then I realized it was dark. And I put my clock and it was one thirty. And then I was really terrified. And I, but in spite of that, I went back to sleep. Well, my alarm went off at one thirty, two thirty, three thirty, four thirty, and I think 5.30. And it, um, in order to turn my light on, I had, I, I mean, to turn the... Um, to reset the clock, the little stub that you turn it on was broken off, and I normally set it with pliers, and I would have to turn on a 100-watt bulb by the bed to see to set it. And and when I reset it each time, it was just very approximate because I couldn't twist the little thing. And each time it was set right on the dot at 130, 230, 330, 430. And so I was very, very scared in spite of the fact I went back to sleep every time and then I was sitting on the bed thinking I'm going to be in big trouble at work because I've just gone insane so I was just sitting there not moving thinking of ways to disguise insanity and not talk to people at work and things like that and then my toothbrush flew across the room and hit the wall and after that everything was normal and I went to work and had a normal day at work and came back, and I took notes on everything that night. um, I wouldn't have reported it because of my job, but I intended to report it, so I really wrote down (laughs) second by second notes. It's rather amazing that you had a UFO experience and then a poltergeist experience all within 24 hours. How do you explain that? Why you? I don't. I have no idea. But in reading about UFOs, I've read that it's common for people who have close encounters to have poltergeist experiences. And the only thing I can figure out is maybe the two are connected some way. Maybe they're just different phases of something that's very mysterious or something. Interesting. Why do you think that your book Sacred Corridors is? Is unique because um, 
it's mainly about Project Blue Book, which is right now on the, there's a show about it on TV yeah. in the United States. And um, I had worked in the places where it took place. And this is unusual because it was at Wright-Patterson and Battelle Memorial Institute. And each of these are secure. Wright-Patterson has chain link fences and mm-hmm. uh, dog teams and everything else. And so ufologists, even though it's a very well-known ufology place, well, ufologists don't get to go in and investigate. And I had been in the uh, secured area several times so that I had seen all the buildings and the inside of some of the buildings and different things like that that other people don't see. And I had also worked at Battelle and... uh, big part of the Project Blue Book took place at Battelle. And so I was there. I knew people that worked on the um, on the project and was able to even get documents and things. So that I had sort of an inside view of uh, both the places where Project Blue Book took place. So, so, the, so the, the documents that you were able to get a hold of, were they classified? And should you have had those documents? Somebody gave them to me. But um, that's what I'm asking, Doctor, is were these classified yeah. documents, and should you have had them? No. Um, yeah, I should have had them. They weren't, they weren't classified, okay. but they were from people that investigated um, what went on at Project Blue Book at Battelle. So why, would, just, so why would they give you these documents? I don't know, but I'm glad they did. <laughs> I guess they wanted people to know what was going on there. Did they know that you had had this UFO experience and the poltergeist experience? Yes. So they knew that you had an interest in ufology? Yes, a number okay. of people at Mattel were interested in UFOs. Mm-hmm. And so I discussed UFOs with several people there. What was your opinion of the History Channel's uh, Project Blue Book? Well, I went into parts of it in my book that uh, weren't what they went into. Project Blue Book, uh, the show and all the general information about it shows the investigation of sightings. Mm-hmm. And like, I guess one of them was the love lights and the another one was the event in West Virginia where um, these people thought they saw UFO land and sort of a burn place and things. I forget what it was called. But anyway, they told what happened during the investigation. It was very dramatized and not exactly what happened. But um, what I went into was another part of Project Blue Book and this is what hardly anybody knows about. All right. Once this again, is- we're going to have to have a cliffhanger because I've got to take my final break. Please stand by. <laughs> An explanation. Our guest this hour is Dr. Irina Scott. Her website is www.irenascott.com. And she's the author of Sacred Corridors. And uh, Dr. Scott and I will be back on the other side of this Oh, short break as we wrap up this hour here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, X-Zone Nation, the 
Late January 2019 edition of the X Chronicles newspaper is now available with our compliments at xchroniclesnewspaper.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back. wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast but the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, everyone. This is the final segment of this hour, and my guest is Dr. Irina Scott. She's the author of a new book that is out there, and if you're a UFO buff, this is something that you must have on your bookshelf. The name of the book is Sacred Corridors, and her website is www.irenascott.com. First of all, uh, Irina, as I was saying during the uh, commercial break, it's been great having you on the show. I look forward to the next time you come and visit us, and I wish you much success with your book. Well, thank you very much. I'm certainly glad you invited me here to be here. Now, um, with all the events that have happened in in your life, why did you wait until now to write this book? Well, I was in the field of science, mm -hmm. and um, scientists are known for not uh, for sort of debunking UFOs. And so I didn't want to get harassed much I see. when I was working. And um, now uh, I decided I'd, I always intended to do more with UFOs, mm -hmm. but I was inhibited by my profession. But now I'm going ahead with what I intended to do and saying something about them. But weren't you also on the board of MUFON, on the board of directors from 1993 to 2000? And... Am I not correct in assuming that during this time from 1993 to 2000, you were working as a scientist? Yeah. Um, I didn't go around telling very many people that I was uh, doing anything with UFOs, but people at work found out and harassed me. Really, eh? Uh, but then I had quite an accumulation of information. I had been the director of publications for MUFON for a number of years, and I also belonged to a local organization and was the editor of their um, publication. And so I had quite a bit written about UFOs already. Mm -hmm. So once I looked at all my writing yeah. and thought, I have a book, and that started me. All right, let me ask you a question about your book. Is the smoking gun, or is there a smoking gun in your book when it comes to UFOs? There were several um, 
in the three books I've written so far, one of them was concerned a study at Battelle, where it was part of this study of part of Blue Book, mm-hmm. where they were supposed to uh, do statistics on the results of their investigations. Their aim was to um, devise a questionnaire that really elicited the information about the UFO sightings and then do a computer study of the statistics on it. And so it needed psychologists and things to do the questionnaire and statisticians. But what they actually hired were metallurgists. And this seemed pretty odd to people, thinking that maybe they had some uh, debris. And there certainly were a lot of stories that there that they had sent debris from Roswell to Wright-Patterson. And then they were doing this study at Battelle where they had all these these real professional metallurgists look at. And so there was a lot of speculation that maybe they had um, debris from maybe the Roswell crisis or something like that. So there, there was a lot of and, circumstantial uh, hypothesis behind it. But what about actual scientific evidence? What, what we found was is that uh, this man that was a... Uh, metallurgist mm-hmm. had told a person that, and a co-worker well a person that, that later worked at Patel that he was working on a, a piece of metal that came from a crash in New Mexico and that he told him that in around 1952 mm-hmm. he didn't get any publicity or anything because he probably got fired if he said anything and he had a would have had a high security clearance, and so that he could have worked in that. And um, nobody knew about Roswell in 1952. Oh wait! A, no, 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 no! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Oh, I think you're wrong there, Doctor, because in 1947 the press release was issued, and it was carried on on a great number of of newspapers as well as radio. So Roswell was known in 1952. Well, it was debunked immediately afterwards, and it didn't make the news again until about 1980 when they pu- when they published the first book about it. Yeah, when Stanton Friedman when Stanton Friedman got involved. Uh huh. Okay, so but I don't think it was. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've yeah. Got, I'll tell you what my problem is with Roswell. Here you've okay. got here you've got uh, the the airbase where the flight. From with the atom, basically it was the atomic wing at that time. Mm-hmm. You've got Jesse Marcel, an alleged base intelligence officer, who gets a call or gets directed to go to a ranch. Uh, he gets goes to Mark Brazel's ranch, and allegedly there's all this debris. So what he did was he decided he he collected some of the debris, put it in his vehicle. And then instead of going directly to the base to maintain the chain of custody of the evidence, what does he do? He goes to his house where he lets his wife and son actually touch government evidence. As soon as that happened, and any member of law enforcement or the intelligence community or, or the military will tell you that as soon as that happened, 
that case was dead and buried. And yet, and yet, because it spins a good yarn, the tail stays alive. So how do we, what, what, what do we do with, with, a, with, a, with something where fact is manipulated so that it makes somebody who breaks the law or breaks the chain of custody and the chain of evidence look like a hero instead of the schmuck he was? How do we well, justify this? I don't know, because what I had as a smoking gun there mm -hmm. was that there was a radio announcer that was on the air at the time uh, the at the time an airplane carried Roswell debris to Wright Patterson. And on the air, he said he had called Wright Patterson. And they were expecting the airplane to land any minute, mm -hmm. and so that's very good smoking gun to me. But how do we know what the? How do we know that what they actually had aboard that aircraft was not Project Mogul? I don't know, and there's a whole lot of questions about it. I just thought that whatever it was, they sent it to Wright Patterson, mm -hmm. and these were the top people in the military. I think it was the five oh nine which were the people that dropped the atomic bomb. Yeah, that's right. They should have known if it was just a balloon. I mean, they should have known, you know, had uh, people with lots of security that would know whether it was a balloon or not. So I thought it was strange that in spite of that, they would send something to Wright Patterson. You know, I, I've had members of the CIA on the show who were in the CIA in, as contractors during that time and each one of them independent of each other have discredited the claims of a ufo in roswell but they all support the claim that it was project mogul so who do we believe i don't know um another smoking gun i had though was that the president of battelle at the time of the roswell incident mm -hmm. His name was Clyde Williams. And I had people, I had information on people that interviewed him. And when they asked Battelle to do the um, the uh, analysis of the UFO information, Battelle wouldn't have really wanted to because they didn't want to get mixed up in UFOs. But the President Battelle accepted the um, project and he had positive statements about it, such as maybe we'll find out something good, maybe we'll advance knowledge and things like that, which if he had, I mean, he was there when the Roswell debris came in, whatever they sent, and you'd think he wouldn't be so positive if he knew it was all nothing, if he just knew it was a mogul balloon or something. Why would he accept the project? Well, because when at the time, at the time, the project mogul was was a classified project. They didn't want the Russians to know that they had the technology that could actually eavesdrop on Russia from high altitude balloons. Like that makes common sense. Like not everything that yeah. the government does is nefarious. Anyway, listen, you and I have got to say so long for now, uh, Irene. I want to thank you so much for joining us. And Exonation, if you'd like to find out more about 
Uh, let me see. Dr. Irina Scott, who is the author of Sacred Corridors, visit her website at www.irenascott.com. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour. As we continue here in the X-Zone with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget to check us out online at www.xzbn.net and on Simultv at www.simultv.com. that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast but the rest of us sleep in this is your sign to thank them and if you're that friend this is us saying thank you now get a sausage McMuffin sausage biscuit sausage burrito or hash browns choose two for $2.50 enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2 price of participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal single item at regular price ba da ba ba 